to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Leah West, and I'm delighted to be joined here today with Bill Robinson and Christopher Parsons, both familiar to listeners of Intrepid. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, a review recently released by the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency, or NSIRA. And NSIRA conducted a review of the Communication Security Establishment, or CSE's, disclosures of Canadian identifying information to other Government of Canada clients. And in reviewing it found that they had disclosed 2,351 Canadian identifiers over a five-year period. And Zyra found that 28% of the requests from all clients were not sufficiently justified to warrant the release of this Canadian identifying information or CII. Nevertheless, during the period, CSC approved 99% of those requests when they came from domestic clients. Given that and other findings relating to CSC's internal practices, NSIRA found that CSC's implementation uh, may not be in compliance with the Privacy Act. This is a pretty striking conclusion, along with a number of other conclusions that were uh, drawn by NSIRA. So I'm happy to be joined by two CSE and cybersecurity experts to help us unpack all of this. I want to start with you, Chris. Can you remind our listeners of what CSE's mandate is and how this concept of Canadian identifying information relates to its mandate? Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks for, for having myself and Bill as well on to talk about this. The review that was undertaken applies to activities that took place before Bill C-59 came into force. So this was still when CSC was under its tripartite mandate under the National Defense Act. It has three principal high-level goals under that. First, to collect signals intelligence information from foreign sources, looking out of Canada to collect information that is of interest or requested by its clients or to, to satisfy the tasking that's been put down to it. It's also there under the National Defense Act to protect critical infrastructure and or systems of importance to Government of Canada. And then it's also, and this is where the review comes in, there to provide assistance to certain federal agencies when they come, usually with a warrant in hand, to get CSE to assist them. So what took place in this, as you mentioned, amongst a few other things, is CSC would either be tasked with collecting information for CSIS or alternately um, would have information that it had previously collected and was disclosing the CSIS under federal warrant. That's the, the broadest context of what was going on. And then as we may get into more discussion, what that meant was, as you mentioned, Canadian identifying information had been disclosed to CSIS instances where uh, the review body found that had been improper. And then more broadly, that other government clients had either received information improperly or there were situations where information had been disclosed or collected pursuant to a warrant that CSIS had obtained vis-a-vis the federal court. And CSE had insufficient controls to ensure that the information that was collected and disclosed under the assistance mandate to CSIS had not subsequently been disclosed to other agencies, which raised some concerns about whether federal ministers or federal officials information rather was disclosed and or information pursuant to sensitive minority groups in Canada. I'd just like to add a little bit to what Chris said about the about the information that's been shared here that we're talking about. Uh, it is uh, in addition to 
information collected with the assistance of CS, uh, CSIS uh, through Section 16. There was a large amount of information that CSE was collecting under its A and B mandates, the Foreign Intelligence Collection and the Cyber Security Mandate, which is also then shared through its own product reporting to these client agencies. So there's a whole lot of sharing that's going on there that had nothing to do with the Section 16 side. That's only one part of the question. And when we're talking about other government clients, we've mentioned CSIS, but what are some of the others that we would expect to see CSE sharing that information with? A a fairly broad range of them. Some of the most obvious ones would be Global First Canada, obviously, because they they have an active interest uh, in in this kind of information. ICED was on the list, which I think surprised a few people. But when you look to see some of the activities that ICED is involved in on a regular basis, which includes collecting, I want to call them quite dossiers, dossiers to explain like how other, how a variety of companies operate so that federal clients can look to see what is up with company X, everything from financial information to leadership information and so forth. And then you're also going to get CBSA, the RCMP, and the other sort of security and law enforcement branches, plus clients that I suspect Bill may have a a more comprehensive view of based on his longstanding awareness. But it's up to, if memory serves, around 15 different government clients or the, the primary subset. I guess we haven't described in great detail what particularly was going on with this? So what's happening is that Canadian identifying information about Canadians or actually persons in Canada, including companies, is potentially being included in reports by CSE that go to its customers, but by the rules and policies in place, specific identifying information has to be what they call suppressed in those reports. So that instead of naming a person or giving their phone number or something, It just says a named Canadian or some sort of generic phrase like that. And then that report goes out and the client may then say, we need to know who that is or or what their phone number is so we can follow up on this issue. And they come back to CSE and they say, this is part of our department's job to look at this kind of information. We have this operational justification. We need to see this particular information. Will you give it to us? And then CSE looks at that request and 99% of the time says yes and hands the information over. So this is what NCIRA and OXAC before were looking at was this procedure for requests for suppressed Canadian identity information and whether in fact those requests were resulting in disclosures. That's what's going on there. And then NCIRA was saying, look, you're not, these justifications that we're getting are not really proper, robust justifications of why you actually need this information. In many cases, we're seeing, uh, they have 28% of the cases were not uh, robust justifications, and this is, is not sufficient. I'm just going to jump in with the legal nerdism for a second and talk about the authority to share that information. So the authority for CSEs to collect information comes from its mandate, as Chris mentioned, but the authority to share it by the Privacy Act and the authority for other agencies to collect that information also largely comes from the Privacy Act. So the Privacy Act governs how government agencies uh, collect and manage private Canadian identifying information. And the term there is personal information. And so Privacy Act in Section 4 sets out the authority for Government of Canada clients to collect information. And the 
authority there is that it can be collected by a government institution only if it relates directly to an operating program or activity of the institution. And CSC's authority to disclose that information comes under 8.2 of the Privacy Act that says that personal information may be disclosed in accordance with any other act of parliament. So then we're looking to the other government's authority to actually collect that information. So I always talk about this as a handshake, right? One hand is the authority to collect that information. The other hand is the authority to share it. And so part of what Insire was doing was looking at whether or not this was being done in accordance with the Privacy Act. So Bill, this is something that OCSEC, so the previous review body, had been looking at, as far as I understand, for a long time. And we hadn't heard from OCSEC the same kind of startling revelations that we heard from Insira. Can you take us back to that and talk us through what OCSEC found in the past and how this is different now? Yeah, sure. OCSEC, the predecessor to Insira, did in fact do regular looks at the CSE's sharing of Canadian identity information, but didn't tend to draw quite as hard a line, I guess you could say, as Insira seems to about what is an acceptable practice. No, they weren't quite as quiet about it as maybe we think. Uh, in fact, uh, the final report that OCSEC did, they also took CSE to task for not having proper operational justifications for sharing in approximately 20% of cases, they said. Now, they didn't uh, then take it to the Attorney General and say, uh, we have a compliance problem here. So they didn't argue that we're looking at potential breach of the law, which is what and Sarah did. So, uh, and Sarah's definitely taking a harder line, but this is actually picking up on things that OCSEC had already started to identify. And Chris, I have my own views, but what are your views on why it's important that Canadian identifying information be suppressed and remain suppressed unless there is an operational justification? for a bunch of reasons. So first, and I think probably most important in, in many ways, is the very capabilities of the CSE are in excess of what almost anything domestically can be. Not to set aside the skills of folks at CSIS, but they, they don't have the same sort of global um, digital collection network. And we have funded and enabled and set conditions for how that data can be collected. We know that it is intrusive and invasive and as a result, we have created a very justifiable policy framework to prevent the CSE generally from collecting information about Canadians, recognizing that incidentally, this will take place as a result of the activities that the CSE is involved in. And so when that information is incidentally collected, preventing it from being shared back to, to government clients outside of very specific and, and needed cases. And that's to prevent what is a very secretive organization from even having the, the whiff of engaging operations that could be to the detriment of, of Canadians. So from my perspective, it's, this is a formerly military organization and Western democracies around the world have basically said that our foreign signals intelligence agencies will not be staring inwards. And that's why the warranting process for CSIS in particular is so important because when CSIS has obtained a warrant, that can include CSC undertaking activities on behalf of CSIS. And that has some fairly profound civil liberties concerns on the basis that 
there is the prospect that this organization that we have developed, it is very sophisticated, very good at what it does. We're now turning it inwards on Canadians. And so suppressing information, putting all the safeguards we have around it is there to protect Canadians to enjoy their, their charter rights without concern or fear that this very sophisticated government uh, signals intelligence agency is not also listening into them. So that's like the policy slash high level charter rationale for it. And in addition to that, it's to prevent the politicization of some of CSE's operations, right? So the fact that they do have to suppress information means that if, I don't know, and a former minister, let's say, is popping up in CSC collections, incidentally, that isn't necessarily automatically fed over to the Minister of Foreign Affairs who finds out that his previous counterpart is, is engaged in something. So it's, it's to prevent politicization of intelligence as well, which is very important. These have to be apolitical institutions as much as is humanly possible. And suppression is one of the many mechanisms that facilitates that. I think it's interesting on that that last point that Ansira did say that they were considering this issue and specifically not, as Bill mentioned, the sharing information through its regular mandate with uh, Government of Canada clients, but particularly in sharing information that was obtained as a part of its assistance to CSIS under Section 16, that it had this conversation had come up in a, a recent federal court decision of Justice O'Reilly, I believe it was, that talked about whether or not CSIS could collect information related to parliamentarians incidentally through its Section 16 activities and whether or not CSIS had sufficient protections in place when that arose and found ultimately that it did. And Syra here saying, we don't have the same procedures and protections in place at CSC. And I'm not sure this came out clearly. The information that CSC is collecting on behalf of CSIS was always believed to be the property of CSIS. That's what CSC said to Parliament, that when CSC is acting on behalf of CSIS, CSIS controls that information. It's there. It, it goes back to them. But what we're finding in this Enfira report is that, no, that's not actually true. CSC ultimately ends up also controlling this information that they've collected on CSIS's behalf, which is information that is turned inwards on non-Canadians within Canada, and then ultimately get shared as well to other government clients without all of the protections that CSIS has around this exact same information. Bill, what do you think that this review in general says about CSE policies? What are we learning about CSE that we didn't learn from previous reporting um, Mm. by OXEC? Not that much, but (laughs) this is the First time we've had officially published figures on how much Canadian identity information CSE releases, as opposed to the number of requests that it gets from its client departments. This demonstrates in particular that the releases are almost always, uh, they always result in releases as when requests are made. So that's an important piece of information. And what we've got here, I think, is two different models for how this should work. But CSE has been moving towards a model, I think, where they try and formalize the process so that it's essentially a matter of checking boxes when you make a a release request. 
And as long as the boxes are checked, you get the material. And it's only the people who mess it up to the point they can't even check the right boxes in the request and get refused. And uh, in Syria and Oxet to some extent before, are saying that we need something a little more than just somebody affirming that they have a, a real justification. We need an actual description of what that justification is and set a little bit of judgment of whether it's suitable. So this is, I think, an important development in the way this uh, system works, not one that uh, CSE is going to welcome at all, because they do deal with hundreds and thousands of these requests. And for them, they they would certainly appreciate being able to do it in in a formalized, quick, no judgment required sort of way. And I don't think that's going to happen. And it's, I think, important that it doesn't happen that way. Chris, did you learn anything new or anything surprising here? Or did you read what you expected when you read this report? I think, so obviously we knew that information was suppressed and could be unsuppressed. The the relative ease at which that was taking place was a little bit surprising. I was actually, uh, one of, there's two things that were, one thing that was actually surprising, one was just like frustrating and perhaps less but should have been. So first, I was surprised that there was a lot more information that was being disseminated from CSC using the framework to disclose CII, as opposed to through SCISA, SCISA, sorry, the Security of Information Disclosure Act, which when that was passed, that was a really big tussle. There was a lot of concerns that what is this going to mean? How is information going to flow? So I was, I was a little bit surprised that you know, that has not seemed to have overtaken the processes and also that there weren't formal mem- uh, memorandums of understanding to explain how this was going to go back and forth. My, my understanding, admittedly, as someone who studies government, so as someone who has operated within government, is that MOUs have become increasingly common, if only as a way of providing legal assurance to recipient and disclosing organizations to, well, here's how we're going to do it so that everything's on the up and up. So that's a little surprising, especially in the context of following the putting in place in CIRA. Folks from CSE have frankly been wandering around Canada and saying, we're very used to review. We have a very professional process. It's, we're all legaled up. Um, we're flying with this on like some of our compatriots, say like CBSA or something. And then it turns out that, oh, actually, it looks like maybe there's a little bit more work to do. That was a little surprising. It wasn't necessarily shocking, but it was like, oh, no, that isn't quite what I thought would happen. Um, what I wish I would say was really shocking, and instead I think it's just really frustrating, was actually the way that CSC presented itself to Parliament um, in the run-up to C-59, which is called it explicitly in this report. They don't name names, which is fully appropriate for the review agency, but I believe that given what they're pointing to, a session they're pointing to, they're, they're almost certainly referring to comments provided by Shelley Bruce, who is then the Associate Chief of CSC, now Chief of CSC, as well as Dominic Rochon, who was then the Deputy uh, Chief Policy and Communications, both of whom impressed upon parliamentarians there was a strict divide between information that was collected on behalf of CSIS or under a Section 16 operation. That certainly is frustrating because in the United States, we have seen for the past two decades situations where leaders of the intelligence community have, they would argue, not lied, but been as truthful as they could be under the circumstances. And the hope is always that authorities in Canada are more fulsome than their American counterparts. 
And I think this betrays either that they didn't know this was going on, which is a problem, or that they were trying to like legally jujitsu a response to parliament in the lead up to expanding CSE's mandate pretty substantively. And, and that's problematic. These are agencies writ large, CSC and, and the others in the intelligence community that have moral legitimacy and political legitimacy to the extent that they are not misleading parliament in the public. And this is a case where it certainly looks as though parliament didn't get all the information that it might've needed to make the decision. Not saying that they would have changed the law necessarily, but they definitely didn't get what was actually going on. And that's really problematic. And frankly, we're moving up to an election, so I don't think this is going to happen. But this is a situation where folks from CSE should be called before the House and be, t- be made to say, like, why did you say this? How did you get away with saying this? Were you actively misleading us or did you not know? And how are you ensuring that you actually know what's going on in your agency, especially if you happen to not be the leader of said agency? And I think that those are very fair questions that need to be put to, to the current chief. And then to ensure that whoever the, I, I know that there's been a job transition, so I don't know the current deputy chief policy and communications happens to be, but there should be a pretty emphatic dressing down of CSE for, for misleading parliament in the lead up to the passage of really substantive legislative amendments. I don't disagree with any of that, uh, but it's a longstanding line that CSE has had that uh, we don't target Canadians or persons in Canada and they just say that it's against the law. And the reason why they they don't talk about Mandate C is the argument has always been from them. We just act as the agent of CSIS or the RCMP for Mandate C. We, we're not really, we're a zombie agency then. We're not doing anything. We're just a tool of, of those agencies under Mandate C. And this has been a longstanding position, which enables them, they think at least, to take this rather nuanced line that they're not permitted to target Canadians when in fact they are permitted to do it under mandate C. So yeah, there's a, this is a choice they've made for really decades to, since the NDA amendments were passed in 2001 to, to uh, take this approach in, in talking about their mandate and one that I think has been a mistake all along. That's a really great point. And one thing Ansira didn't talk about and maybe because there's nothing to see here, was about information that the RCMP requests CSE with getting. RCMP investigations are not limited as in the same way Section 16 investigations are limited in the sense that they can directly target Canadians. And again, there was no discussion of information arising from Section 12 investigations. In those cases, information about Canadians isn't incidentally collected, both in the case of RCMP investigations and the case of CSIS Section 12 security intelligence warrants. Both organizations can go and similarly request CSE to help them collect information. That information is collected by CSC. The line has always been that information doesn't belong to us, it belongs to the requesting agency. We've just found out that when it's section 16 and Canadians information is incidentally collected, that's not true. So does that line not also hold up when the collection activities is purposely targeting Canadians? Does this concept that CSE then gets to share information that it's collected on behalf of other organizations arise in those contexts? We didn't get any answers there. And Syra didn't seem to point at all in that direction because they were talking about Canadian identifying information that was incidentally collected rather than being the target. But that 
that to me is a question that I have arising from all of this. One thing I'm interested in your perspectives is two other things we haven't really talked about. I thought Insira is showing its, its capacity here by following the thread, which was something that was always the problem with the previously styled approach to review and that Insira was able to go back to the requesting agencies and actually get information from them under their mandate as to how the agencies uh, were requesting that information and for what purposes. So that was great to see. And Insira did make a number of recommendations with how to deal with this. And CSC responded to Insira's recommendations. Throwing it out to either of you, what did you make of the recommendations and or what did you make of CSC's response? I guess the first uh, complaint I have is that there were apparently 11 recommendations made by NSARA, but really you can find evidence of about six of them in the report that was made available to the public. So we don't really know entirely what NSARA recommended. And that's unfortunate. I hope that in future, when we get uh, the public versions of reports, there's a more effective reporting on what NSARA has in fact been recommending. I was hopeful that uh, we won't have to go and do access to information requests every time one of these reviews comes out in order to find out what was actually going on. And the the idea of these public proactively released reports was in part to uh, save us all from having to go through the Access to Information Act. So it'd be very unfortunate if uh, we're stuck doing that again in order to find out what's going on. Chris, do you want to jump in on what in fact was recommended? Certainly some of the key pieces internal to the CSC itself that were recommended were to to begin put far better documentation in place so that staff at the CSC had to explain the, the rationale for which disclosures were made. Also set up situations whereby, you know, especially when it pertained to Canadian officials information or, or information associated with sensitive parties in Canada, that would have to go up to managerial level. Making sure the managerial level had to also more uh, robustly assess requests because it doesn't seem like based on the NSEER report that they were satisfied with the robustness there. And also associated with that, ensure that organizations didn't just have the lawful requirement, which you mentioned previously, Leah, but also the operational need. And so this gets back to, to Bill's earlier point that this can't just be a checkbox process. And definitely suggests that CSC and or lawyers that are associated with CSC should be more involved in more robust back and forths with um, the agencies uh, that are coming to the CSE to ensure that requests are made appropriately. I think one of the other really important things we haven't really touched on, but is very noteworthy and, and actually was a little bit surprising, to be honest. Um, this isn't what I would have expected to happen in any of these disclosure situations was there would be times where a requesting agency would come for you know, the name of the business as the example used in the report. And then the party within CSC who is making or authorizing disclosure didn't provide that, but provided that plus a whole bunch of other identifying information. And in Sierra was pretty clear that was not a one-off thing. And there were other scenarios where that took place, which is indicative that it wasn't like a couple of handoff moments, but like classes of activities in which greater information was disclosed than requested. I have to admit, I'm a little bit curious to why that was happening. And the, the report didn't get into that. And it may be because there was no written rationalizations to explain why that was taking place. So this year may have been unable to follow that, that next step. 
Uh, if I could just throw in one quick thing on the, um, on the question of handing out more information than they were asked for. I think uh, what often happens is that they have a large amount of identity information about the suppressed Canadian identity. So a name and a phone number or a, an email address and so on. And it doesn't all appear in the report, even in suppressed form. But if someone like CISA says, we need to investigate this person, hand us the information, they hand over all the identity information that they have, not just what was suppressed in the report. But it gets problematic if, if you're not in that kind of investigative mode and what you're, uh, if you're say at Global Affairs and you just need to know the name of the Canadian company to help give you context for what you're reading in the report, you don't need to know the name and the email address of the particular Canadian involved and all the rest of that stuff. And so handing over additional information, yeah, is, is, is really unjustifiable and something that uh, is surprising and, and definitely worth having been called out for. One of the recommendations that I thought was really important, and I think goes back to your comments, Chris, about MOUs, was the requesting agencies understanding what was required of them in order to meet the criteria. Because in Cyrus says, when we asked them, we got very long legal opinions on why this information was necessary, but CSC wasn't getting the same information from them and yet still providing the information. So both requestor and NCSC needs to understand what is required of them. And so again, we're seeing this capacity for Insira to make recommendations that'll have implications across the community that would positively improve these processes. Bill, I was wondering what you thought about CSC's response. My takeaway was that they spent a whole lot of time making sure everyone understood that they were really looking forward to working with review and they absolutely accepted all of their findings, but we don't actually agree with their findings. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a fair summary. Yeah. So is that consistent with what we've seen in the past from CSC and its response to review? Normally, we don't see a, a response that's written for the public where you get this large surrounding body of material about how much we love the review and how much we support the agency and, and appreciate its work. Uh, so normally you just, uh, you might see reported in an OXEC report that uh, CSE had accepted such and such a recommendation and was intending to do this two sentences worth of stuff. So it's different in that sense uh, uh, that this is definitely something written for the public. I guess fairly clear that they disagreed with uh, the suggestion that they might not have been in compliance with the law and, and, that, uh, and that so they didn't accept the conclusions or the, the analysis that then Sarah put forward. And that's significant. It's worth noting that CSC in its rebuttal, which is hit and miss in different parts, uh, I read it at least, but they note that a lot of the recommendations that had made had previously been made and or implemented, but they don't make clear which ones were and which ones weren't. So based on my read, at least the response, I didn't get a sense of we fixed that four years ago or we fixed that four days ago. So it wasn't entirely apparent if they were saying that when Sierra was going back and looking at history, yes, they found things, but there were things that CSE knew existed and had corrected based on perhaps something from the CSE commissioner or if in the back and forth between the CIRA 
and the CSE, they have since implemented those recommendations ahead of the report being published. I think it's helpful to see the government vis-a-vis CSE come out and say, hey, the private a lot of problems. The things that you think the Privacy Act should make us do have written documentation. We don't think the Privacy Act requires. I think that you can probably study the Privacy Act and maybe you come to different conclusions on, on that, which, wow, that's a problem. Like it, I cheekily wrote that I hope this means that the chief of CSC and the Office of Privacy Commissioner of Canada can walk to Parliament together and say, hey, we need this in the updated Privacy Act that eventually will be coming along. So to begin with, there is a bit of uh, concern that this is an interpretation. Perhaps not surprising this Privacy Act is old <laughs> and needs refurbishment. But that, bit, was a little, yeah. a bit. <laughs> that was a bit surprising. The other thing that and, and I, I can imagine that this is difficult to do in an unclassified version. So maybe it's more apparent in the class versions that is being circulated among certain parts of the government. But I have to admit that I read certain parts of the CSC's response saying we don't even understand like how we were being evaluated. Like we don't know what an appropriate disclosure is. We don't have a good sense of methodology from Mensira. And yeah, so we agree with your recommendations, but like your very principle of methodology, we don't think there's anything there. Okay, maybe. So I will grant CSC a maybe there because we don't have enough details to what their specific problems are. But that's the thing, like it, it, I would hope that they would have been clearer. And so the Privacy Act has been interpreted in this way and pursuant to the way that the government of Canada understands the Privacy Act, this is not the way it pertains. And as such, we have Insira coming at us with a version of the Privacy Act that maybe is, you know, friendlier to privacy, friendlier in the sense of the public, but is actually contrary to the way the government of Canada internally has assessed what the Privacy Act means. If that's the argument, wow, that's sort of important to know that there's a whole body of secret law around the Privacy Act that we weren't expecting would wander around the government. Or is it that they thought that in Syria had a perfectly valid initial methodology, but the way it was applied was re- was in high variance across the different cases they looked at. And so people at CSC were like, look, you judged us this way on this piece of data, this way on this piece of data, this way on this piece of data. What is it? There's no underlying theory that draws all these together. Maybe that was the case. I don't know. But that's the problem is that we're provided with critiques of what Insira did without the substance of what the critique is. So we're being told and not shown. And on the other side, at least to my read, we are being shown, not told by Insira. And so it's a really awkward way to read CSE's response because they're subject to review. They seem to be a little frustrated by the way that this review has been undertaken, but then they don't really explain what the specific problems are. And I think to my eye, one of the most substantive things that they do is they they do lean back on the previous review they gotten from the CSE commissioner. They said, look, it was fine in the past. This was cool. What's going on now? And, and I think that also definitely raises some questions about the way, what, if this is just a stylistic difference, if Insira is saying out loud what the CSE commissioner is saying quietly within government, or if there's an actual variance in the way that the two bodies look at CSE and, and whether that means that a lot of the things that were identified as kosher previously under the CSE commissioner are now going to be re-reviewed and really throw CSE through the loop. 
and I half suspect that what we're reading in the CSE's response is defensive, saying, what's going on? This is not this is not really what we signed up for in all of this. And so we'll see where that goes in further reviews. If Insira is going to be re-re-re-reviewing past things that have been investigated, or if this happens to have just been a one-off and maybe the review relationship will be a little bit less defensive going forward. I think you raise an important point that the OXEC had a different threshold for what was acceptable. And we don't know that's the case, but that seems to be what CSE is saying. OXEC has become the IC, so the intelligence commissioner, literally the same person who's responsible with not review, but oversight. So if there are two different thresholds here, if the person responsible for saying CSE, yes, go ahead, you can do X, Y, and Z under your mandate, right, it doesn't have a consistent understanding of legal authorities or requirements of Save the Privacy Act, the charter, CSE's mandate, and then the review body coming along has a different threshold, we could see this tension play out in future reviews, which would be interesting. Yeah, and, and I actually think that this is one of the areas where it's, th- these are two, in the case of CSC and NCIRA, but also with OXAC, like, these are public responses that are now jousting with one another. And you know, I at least don't feel like I have enough information based on what is publicly available to figure out who is necessarily right, who's offside, who's onside, who has a new interpretation, a misinterpretation, whatever. There needs to be clarity on this because I think that CSC has, for all sorts of reasons, really leaned heavily on the fact that they keep, they have been able to assert time and time again, vis-a-vis OXEC, that they are behaving lawful. But now we're in a situation where if the OXEC is being called into question and the same individual is now the oversight body, and so my concern would be that when there's a retroactive review of what the previous OXEC has done and, and it's found wanting, what does that mean for the lawfulness of what CSE is doing? And, and setting aside whether it is an actual fact unlawful or if it's a different interpretation of lawfulness. So setting aside the uh, substantive nature of, of the back and forth, but simply the appearance of CSE behaving unlawfully is incredibly problematic. This is already an agency that not a lot of Canadians know about, and and there's a worrying distrust in government agencies and institutions writ large, especially secretive ones. You know, the public thinking that that there is an unlawful signals intelligence agency wandering around Canada is about the last thing Canada needs, and the last thing, obviously, the CSC needs. So I think that there has to be a public refereeing process, whether that's a, a federal court judge that is able to, to look at this. I, I don't actually know the process by which it could go through, but it should be an impartial body that like at least explains what's going on so that we the public doesn't have this kind of question. Speaking of a federal court judge potentially getting involved, we saw a little bit of a harken back to 2013 when the old OXEC said, hey, CSC, I think you and CSIS have been, have one understanding of things, but I don't think CSIS is telling this whole picture and what you understand to the federal court. And that was around CSC assisting CSIS under its assistance mandate by actually asking foreign agencies 
to help them out, which was not something that the court uh, was aware of, found that it couldn't be done under the court's jurisdiction, and actually led the court to calling CSIS back in front of it. And we got the first case that called into question CSIS's duty of candor, which has now become a theme. And in this case, we have again Insira saying, hey, we don't think that what is the understanding between CSC and CSIS is being conveyed to the court who's ultimately issuing CSIS these warrants under Section 16. So I thought that was an interesting throwback. I'm just wondering if either of you have, have any thoughts on that or what we think we should expect next. I have that same question you have. The, the court was reportedly given the information in January. And so what's happened since then, we don't know. Uh, has the court followed that up? Have they called CSIS in to, to give account like they did in the DIFFS case? We don't know. And uh, there was a recommendation by NSIRA that, that CSE not do any reporting of this kind of material until this had been resolved with the court. And, and we know that CSE says it's accepted all recommendations, but we, we don't know where, where this stands. So CSE is back reporting the material. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. So yeah, there's a lot of questions around that. And, um, but at least it demonstrates one of the values of having this kind of review body compared to the siloed ones that we had in the past, that it seems that it was easier for NSERA to go across the agencies and to see this kind of mismatch where in the past, OXEC uh, could certainly have looked at the warrants, but they would not have known um, what kind of affidavits CSIS was providing to the court or any kind of the whole material around CSIS policy that was understood by the court, but would not have been known to uh, OXEC. So, so uh, yeah, that's a really interesting question and one I hope we'll learn more about. And it is an interesting comparison because in the 2013 situation, we had to wait for the annual report of the OXEC to come out. And that was how the court learned about all of this. In this case, Insira did suggest that CSIS tell the court. So one would hope that happened proactively. But if they didn't, at least they didn't have to wait a whole year to get the annual report to learn about it, like Justice Mosley did back in 2013. Chris. Yeah, one thing I think is just helpful to know broadly exactly what was said. So it's a slight paraphrase. Ultimately, NSERA found that CSIS disclosures did, quote, not present a complete picture due, end quote, due in part to CSIS noting, quote, in less detail and with omission, some aspects of CSC's parallel disclosure of CII, Canadian Identifying Information, collected through its assistance to CSIS under these warrants. Like, it, it is very challenging for someone who is entirely outside of government, who is just looking in, it seems, it almost seems like we're getting to the point where once a year or so, we get some account of CSIS having misled or, or not adequately informing the courts of the range of its activities. And I'm sure within CSIS and their legal assistance, this is like playing to the edge of the line or something like that. But, it's very hard to look at all of this and not feel that like the edge of the line is actually misleading the court. <laughs> and, and, and this keeps coming up, right? Like this is not a new thing. And I know that CSIS is, is asserted that like they've modified practices and so forth, but this is becoming, this should be shocking. 
And when I read that, oh yeah, that doesn't surprise me in the least. And that's a real problem. No one in Canada should look at the fact that the Security Intelligence Service is being misleading to the court. Like, oh yeah, that's just the way it works. Like, wow, that's a problem. And I'm glad that NSERA could follow this through. I think it's important. Hopefully the federal court responds. But there has to be a point at which either the government or the federal court or some institution seriously just not just takes ceases to task, but also there have to be changes in the way this is operating because it's, it's frankly unacceptable. And there are concerns when you have a foreign signals intelligence agency disclosing identifying information. But, you know, it's not going to happen that someone from CSE is ever going to knock on your door and say, hi, let's have a talk. That's not the case with CSIS. They're a much more muscular agency in that sense. And it's imperative that people understand that they behave in the, the, the contours of the law. And this is another situation where that is being called into question. And that's immensely damaging to the service. And, and I can only imagine is incredibly demoralizing to the, the men and women at CSIS who really do work really hard and once again are getting tripped up over this. I totally agree. And I'll just say why it's important for the court to have all of this information is because the court is deciding what terms and conditions to put on a warrant to protect the privacy of Canadians and to protect the privacies of those whose information who are protected by Section 8. You're in Canada, you're protected by Section 8, right? The extent to which the terms and conditions are necessary to protect their Section 8 rights when they're being investigated by CSIS. And if the court doesn't understand that information could subsequently be shared with a variety of government agencies by CSE, they don't have all the information necessary to put terms and conditions appropriately to ensure that the search remains reasonable in the context of what of the investigation. So not having all that information blinds the court to some issues that they may need to consider when they're deciding whether A, to issue the authorization or how to limit that authorization. Importantly, SIRA is conducting a massive review of how CSIS and lawyers from the Department of Justice deal with advice to CSIS and their interactions with the court. And that's been in process since last summer. I think we've covered a lot of ground. Some of this was very inside baseball, but hopefully uh, provided uh, enough context for everyone. SIRA, again, proving itself as a new and different kind of review agency. I deeply appreciate the analysis of Chris and Bill. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about on these issues in the months and years to come. So thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.